All right, guys, welcome to the Ravid Show. Uh, very happy to have my next guest today, uh, Dr. Wayne Wingstein uh, on the Ravid Show. Uh, we'll be discussing about uh, a lot of things, obviously about Excel for sure. Uh, just a little about uh, uh, Dr. Wayne. Uh, Wayne is a professor uh, and higher education consultant. He's the founder of Excel with Wayne. Uh, today we'll discuss about his journey, Excel 365 analytics in various fields and much more. So uh, keep your questions ready in terms of uh, Excel analytics and uh, much more. Uh, we'll be talking a lot around uh, analytics. Uh, so uh, feel free to ask questions. Also, before bringing in uh, Wayne Wingston, obviously I would want to let you guys know that we are giving away to annual subscription of uh, 365 data science. So do not forget to just comment hashtag 365 data science and we'll get the ball rolling. By end of the show, we'll be announcing two winners without any further waiting. Let's have Wayne Wingston. Hello, Wayne. Uh, okay, welcome to the Rabbit Show. It is right. such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, and I was just letting folks know that we'll be talking a lot around um, uh, your journey about Excel 365 analytics and obviously your uh, company Excel with Wayne. So to start with, can you just introduce yourself? Okay. I mean, I guess I could start when I was a young kid. My mother thought I was smart, which I eventually turned out to be, but I wasn't very smart. She got me to skip kindergarten by writing my name. And I still don't know how to write my name, but she convinced the, kin the school though to write the first grade a year early. And so my in first grade, I got a D in math because I was not ready for first grade. By the time I got to fourth or fifth grade, I was pretty good at math and I got better. I would do US batting averages in my head. Like if a guy has, he hits in 150 at bats, 300 at bats, he hits 267. And that got me good at math. And then I just started reading math books and I, got to be good at math. I went undergrad to MIT in math, uh, PhD from Yale in operations research, math applied to business, then in, got a job at Indiana University teaching in the business school, which was really great. And that was my first and really only job. And then mm -hmm. I excel in 1992. Someone like I had used Lotus in class a little and somebody said, you need to learn Excel. So I learned Excel and I saw all the management science and operations research I've been teaching. We could do it in Excel. And mm -hmm. so I started really converting to teaching all my courses, statistics, management, science, analytics in Excel. And I think the books that I started writing and Chris Albright does most of the work now have revolutionized the way people teach business modeling. And then I was lucky enough to get invited to go in 1999 to Microsoft to teach their finance department, Excel and analytic modeling. And I did that probably for mm -hmm. 15 or 20 years. And then they asked me to write these Excel books for Microsoft Press, which have sold very well. And I'm working yeah. on the Office 365 version. And I've gotten various consulting jobs along the way in sports, uh, marketing, et cetera. So that's a quick summary, I guess, of my journey. Wow, this is fantastic. And uh, definitely I was uh, looking at the book, uh, Microsoft Excel 2019. It is excellent. And I think the community has uh, welcomed it very well. And uh, they, they've just, I was reading through the reviews and all of those things. They are fantastic. Uh, and obviously I know uh, more about Excel with Wayne. Uh, 
uh, that we'll discuss more about the the courses that you create and what's the uh, purpose behind it and who, who are the target audience and all of those things. Oh yeah, okay, so, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, since you are a consultant and professor, what is that you uh, love doing the most and why, uh, and what do you think? It's hard to say, I love being a professor. I still teach, I do mainly online stuff, but I have one class I teach in the fall. I just, my philosophy in teaching is get people enough good examples and they can extrapolate from the examples to harder problems. And I think that's worked well. I look, I see on LinkedIn, my students, so many of my students have good jobs. One of them became the visualization head of Facebook after, and he said he was inspired that I taught him a Saturday session on charting in Excel. And then I have one student who's the head of analytics at North Face, make codes in the US. And I got another student who I just found out is head of investor relations for Microsoft. So I mean, a lot of my students have really done well. And I think it's because I, by showing them a set of hard problems, they could see what's important and they could develop models of harder problems like Monte Carlo simulation models that most schools don't teach. And so, I mean, I really am gratified by being a professor and I love consulting like when we would advise the Dallas Mavericks and the New York Knicks on their lineup and player selection. I love mm -hmm. that because you could see the results on the basketball court. And when I would help 3M with marketing analytics, I like that. I mean, I just like being shown a problem and trying to figure out how to solve it. So I don't know which way, which, which I like better, professor or consultant. Wow, that's I, I know that's a kind of difficult question. But what was your motivation when you, uh, you know, when you started um, lecturing and obviously you became a professor? What was that motivation? My father was a college professor, taught electrical engineering at what's now New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark, New Jersey. I'm from Livingston mm -hmm. High School, which is a very good high school. But I mean, I just really like math and to be honest, when I started teaching at age 25, I was a terrible teacher, probably about the worst teacher in the business school. I'll be honest about that. But then I just figured out this way of because we're teaching things like calculus, linear programming with the simplex method, stuff that was just really boring for the students and I could get up there, but my handwriting was terrible. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it was hard for them to follow me. But then when I could start using PCs in the late 80s and early 90s, I became a much better teacher. And when I understood the power of Excel for teaching the things that I taught, then I became a really good teacher. I won the award as the best teacher in the business school in the MBA program six times and won over 40 teaching awards in my time at Indiana. And so, I mean, I think I figured it, I think it's partially because I would be funny in class and get off the subject. Because I think you really can't win a teaching award unless you have a good sense of humor. You can be the world's best teacher and you probably won't win a teaching award like I'd be, I'd be talking about linear uh, solver model. And then I'd say, did you see what happened on Gossip Girl last night? And the class mm -hmm. break up. I mean, I would, I mean, I just, I think I had a more relaxed, a less uptight attitude towards class than other people. And I think I had a good feel when the students were, I, we would always start with a blank spreadsheet, fill it in, explain every step. And if they had trouble, they raised their hands and I or a student would help them. And then at the end, we'd summarize, what does the spreadsheet mean? And none of this power, I maybe I hate PowerPoint because I don't know how to use it, but I think mm -hmm. PowerPoint is really, in most situations, a bad way to teach. I mean, you should come to class 
with the model not filled in at all that explain the problem, explain what you need to do to solve the problem, and then explain the answer. But doing that in PowerPoint, I think, is a huge disservice to the students. Yeah, definitely. I Most mean, people would disagree with me, but I don't care. <laughs> no, but I think, yeah, definitely it does make a lot of sense. And uh, that's quite a story. Uh, when, and obviously, uh, since you were talking about Excel, I had I, I wanted to know some of the new features that we find in the Excel 365 uh, since it's a subscribed model. So what yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I just want to say a word about Excel with Wayne. I've recorded over 60 at excelwithwayne.com, over 60 hours of videos wow. on Excel analytics and statistics, which I think a lot of your listeners and viewers would enjoy. But Office 365 is a living, breathing thing. They add new stuff all the time. So, I mean, just a couple of the high points. If you write if statements, they get very cumbersome with the right parentheses and you have to repeat the word if. So there's a new function, if s, that makes things simpler. There's other functions, but I think that's the most important one. But the thing I think that's uh, most amazing are the new data types. Like you can type in a, the singer Adele and you can, and then Excel goes to the web. I think they made a deal with Mathematica and they'll get you information about Excel. Why did Excel, why did Adele cross the road? So she could sing hello from the other side. That's a joke. But if I type in Excel in basically, sorry, Adele in Excel, and then I can access her all her albums. And then I can access for each of her albums, all the tracks on her albums. And mm -hmm. if I type in a city, like if I type in Los Angeles, California, Mumbai in India, yeah. uh, I can access latitude, longitude, demographic information, income information, and I can use this in my formulas. I mean, it's really mm -hmm. quite amazing. And then there's a new function stock history which lets you download stock returns daily and basically every day it automatically updates i was just conversing with the person at microsoft who works on that and you can get bitcoin prices daily stuff like that use these data types and the stock history function will revolutionize our teaching because we always struggle with getting data well, and, so they, yeah. and then the thing that's probably the most useful uh Two most useful things i all the things i've mentioned are good power query so if i for instance if i have a table in excel sales every month of every product and i want to make that a flat file where every piece of information is in a different row that mm -hmm. used to be a real pain to do but with power query you can automate that and when you get new data you just hit refresh and your task is updated so i was consulting with a company and power company in south carolina and a person working at the company, she had to, she had a spreadsheet where it would have, let's say, name of a customer, blank for 12 rows that column, name of another customer, blank for 20 rows, name of a customer, name of a customer, blank for 30 rows, and she would manually fill down the names of the customers. On Power Query, that's one step. You just hit fill down, and you can sort it. So when a new piece of data comes in, it goes in exactly the right place, sorted correctly. So if you if you're viewers spend a lot of time doing mindless transformation of data and when new data comes in every time they need to know our query and then there's the dynamic arrays which are incredible so in excel you can make things an excel table which means when you have formulas they update automatically so the key formulas that we can talk about briefly there's the unique formula so if you have let's say five thousand rows and you have three different columns let's say 
salesperson, product, and location. You can get every unique combination of salesperson, product, and location. And when you add new data, that updates automatically. Then there's a sort function. So we usually sort by going data sort, but you can sort with a formula. When you add new data, your sort updates. And then there's a filter function. We usually filter with the auto filter and then you have to keep doing it again. But if you have new data and use the filter function, your filtering updates automatically if you make the source data in an Excel table. And then you can combine these array functions. There's two more, RAND array and sequence, which are also quite cool. And again, I'm working on my Office 365 book, should be out by the end of the year. And we have chapters on all these new things. Also, there's the Lambda function. So a lot of your viewers have created custom functions in VBA. But the Lambda function lets you basically create those functions without VBA, which is really uh, quite incredible. And of course, there's a lot of new charts, but I think I've said enough about that. But next question. Fantastic. I think uh, uh, since you were talking about stocks, uh, uh, Wayne, so these, uh, as you mentioned, the stock trading, uh, can we also see the forecast of uh, the stock there when it auto updates? Uh, the, I don't think the stock history gives forecasts. Now, you bring up a really good point, though. You want to know, like, and this goes for every analytics question, does the, mm -hmm. the past prologue, can you use the past to forecast the future? So with Morningstar mutual fund ratings, I think it's shown when a five-star fund is unlikely to be a five-star fund. A one-star fund is on using the past to predict the future is always difficult. So what you need to do is sort of back test methods. So like a lot of people use technical analysis, they looked at the pattern of prices to predict the future. So what this history does is let you back test trading algorithms very quickly and very easily. But a lot of times, so we're, the only place I know to easily get, there are probably other places, to easily get forecasts for stocks is on Yahoo. Yeah. You go Yahoo analyst forecast, they'll give you a range of forecasts, most likely. And then I can build a Monte Carlo model to predict where my portfolio is going. But if you subscribe to, I think, uh, Wharton has a database called WRDS Words that I think has analyst forecasts. But the trick is to go back, and I haven't, I don't know where to get this data. I want to go back to get past analyst forecasts to see if they were biased upward. Because right. most forecasts that people make in business are biased high. And then if you use them to make decisions, you're going to make mistakes. So my favorite story on bias and forecasts. So I was teaching a class at Microsoft, and I said, do you think Microsoft marketing forecasts are biased high. And so they all said, finance people said, yeah, they forecast too high. So then I said, what do you do to correct for that? And the guy was joking, but he said, I divide by 10. And there was, he was saying marketing forecast 10 times too high, which wasn't really true. But I think it used to be most analysts forecast too high. But if you, it's very important when you're looking at forecasts to eliminate the bias and understand that a forecast is not a point estimate. If, Apple says we're going to sell 20,000 iPhones at a store in a month. They're not going to sell 20,000. They're going to sell less or more. If I predict uh, the Milwaukee Bucks were going to win their last game, which they did, which I was happy about, by five points, they're not going to win by five. Every forecast has probabilities attached to it. And it's a very important thing for us professors to teach people how to attach probabilities to forecasts. Go ahead. Exactly. 
and Roman is saying he agrees. So we have a question from the yes. audience. I'd, I would love to pick that question yes. um, from Aditi. Uh, she's asking, how do you see Excel 365 evolving in the future? That's a great question, Aditi. Uh, I think I was consulted in the past by the person who ran Excel. He's no longer the person running Excel, John Campbell. And they're, it's a living, breathing thing. They'll try and come up with more features like these new data types. They'll add more data types. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, so you could have input into this. There's something called Excel user voice. If you go on Excel user voice, you make a suggestion for Office 365. And if enough, and they'll take the suggestions that most people vote for and they'll put them in. So you, well, everybody in the world has a say as to what goes into Office 365. And so uh, I think there's function, like here's just one example. A lot of times people want to find the last word in the cell. So create a function that would get you the last word in the cell. If there are things that you do fairly often, they can create a function for that. Or what I would like to see Office 365 do, it's got good charts, but a lot of people are switching to Tableau, which personally I'm not a big fan of Tableau. I mean, I don't find it that easy to use compared to Excel, but maybe that's just me. But I think Office 365 should mimic a lot of the really good charts that are in Tableau and add those to the uh, to the chart. Like, oh, I don't remember the name of a chart, but there's one where lines mm -hmm. can go from left to right. But I mean, if I, I really think that's the best thing Office 365 people can do is add, at this point is add more charts where we just point and click. So they've added funnel charts, waterfall charts, box plots, I think more sophisticated correlation charts that basically that, that basically I can see the, the uh, solver people have a bunch of nice charts or a lot of the more sophisticated charts that are in R and Py, uh, basically because Excel, the thing about Excel is you can only see the data. You can only see what you're doing. And yeah. you just point to the data, you create the chart. And I mean, like, in, I mean, I understand we can talk about R and Python later. I understand a lot of times to do the things, something in R, it's like using a cannon to swat a fly. I mean, it's not, you don't need it. I mean, there are a lot of things Excel can't do, and we can get to that later. I mean, I totally agree. There, Excel is not the best tool in every situation. But if I'm a business analyst and I don't have like, over a hundred thousand rows and i want to do and they're making office making the performance much faster oh i forgot x lookup x lookup makes v lookup absolute uh, obsolete x lookup is a much more sophisticated function you don't have to know h lookup and v lookup you can return multiple columns you can match on wild cards and things like that so i should have mentioned x lookup and i've probably forgotten things but i think office 365 evolving in the future if i was there right now and advising them, I would go for, I think Tableau is a big threat to them. And basically I think adding charts to the chart the insert tab that are the charts that people like that they don't have. I mean, cause yeah. for instance, waterfall charts, I know Microsoft, everybody at Microsoft and lots of companies love waterfall charts and you could work around and can create them. But basically now it's one click in, in Office 365 create a waterfall chart. And I mean, I don't see how it could be easier in Tableau. When I tried to create charts in Tableau, it just wasn't that easy. I couldn't see my data. It didn't like me putting my stuff in Excel. And then I, I forgot to mention 3D map, which is also a great feature. 
Like I created a map for my book of the New York City subway system, one of the lines, and you could show that I created a map for another book that showed where the cholera cases were in London in the 1850s, which is a classic analytic study. Go ahead. Fantastic. So, uh, uh, when there was another question, Vincent yes. was talking about features, uh, there's a question from Manisha. Uh, how is Excel 365 uh, different from Microsoft Excel? What are some of the new features? I think we went through that. I think I went, the features I mentioned are 90% of what I mentioned is not in Office. It, like, okay. if you have Excel 2016, you don't have those things I talked about. But if you have Office 365, you have those things like XLOOKUP, dynamic mm -hmm. arrays and data types. Those are only in 365. And you can see their philosophy is they want you to go to the subscription. I found out the US Army, just uh, one example, just converted from Excel 2010 to Office 365. And so that's a big jump. They had Excel 2010 for 10 years, 11 years. And so that's, a, you, if you think back to Excel 2010, that's like the dinosaurs. The way you did party was absolutely horrible, and that's gotten much better. But I mean, I, I, I think Excel is being good at Excel, you have to know all the functions and how to combine them. I got a problem from one of my online students today where he was manually filling in 5,000 pieces of data, and what he needed to know was how to combine the mod function, the index function, and text functions. I need to work on that for him. But basically, you're not good at Excel unless you understand all the functions and how to combine them. I mean, don't say something's a count if problem, like this guy's problem was an index problem, a text mm -hmm. problem, function problem, and it was also a mod a mod problem. And so I had to, because I had to pick out certain rows with the mod function, I could pick out the rows that he needed. And so you get good at Excel by sort of learning if you see a pattern in a spreadsheet, you can write a formula that takes advantage of that pattern. And that's the, one of the key things I would teach my students through lots of examples. And my students got really good at that. I'm really proud of that. Because I mean, I would, you could use like the mid function to extract stuff, even if it's not the same number of characters in the, each row, if you understand how the function works. Go ahead. Fantastic. I think uh, since you're a professor, Wayne, uh, obviously I would want to know what are the m most important topics that you focus on uh, these days or maybe in general. Depends on the course. So what I taught in the MBA program, I didn't teach the MBA core course. I did it a long time ago, but there mm -hmm. we try and teach them statistics through Excel. I mean, wow. just basic data analysis. And then we'd go to a spreadsheet modeling class where we would teach optimization and simulation and the op with the optimization and simulation we want to make sure they learn advanced excel functions like offset and indirect see i mm -hmm. think offset and indirect are excel's two hardest functions but i always made sure my students were good at those functions so like i can use offset function to develop a technical analysis trading rule model and optimize that with solver and then we would have functional area courses like i would have marketing analytics. I have a book on marketing analytics, which has really good ratings, even though I never took a, I never took a business course in my life. I mean, all I did was take math and operations research. So I never took a business course in my life, but I think I've taught myself a lot about business. I knew a lot about math and I taught myself a lot about Excel. And so the marketing analytics course, we would teach marketing. We would teach like uh, cluster analysis, discriminant analysis. I figure out how to do them in Excel. 
pivot tables. So we, my book has like an 80 page chapter on pivot tables. Well, you got it. They used to say at Microsoft, if you didn't know pivot tables, you got fired in two weeks. If you're in Microsoft finance, I mean, you got to know how to summarize that. Whatever your job is in business, you mm -hmm. got to know pivot tables inside out. I think the Excel with Wayne site has really good videos on pivot tables. And I think my book, the Office 365 book is very good on pivot tables. And mm -hmm. the marketing analytics book, we talk about regression, of course. I mean, more advanced approaches to regression. Uh, naive Bayes, I don't get into AI that much because the question is, if you're teaching AI and your students don't know Python or R, what tool are you going to use to do AI? I would like to, I haven't had to teach this, but I would like to use Excel Miner from the solver people to teach AI to business school people. But uh, I think a lot of people are teaching it from uh, the Microsoft platform that has the, uh, that they put the data mining in now. But I, I think that's coming in the future that a lot of people will teach through the uh, Microsoft data mining feature. But I would like to see in Excel, they used to have this for a while. You just click a button, you can do cluster analysis, you can do a neural net. They could easily put that in. Uh, yeah, David Gonzalez says he loves pivot tables. Yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, another question from uh, uh, David that I could see is, has Excel simplified table spreadsheets joins? Well, I think, I'm not sure, if, I think that means not doing the joins with the uh, relationships and power pivot and the data model, if that's what he means, I don't think they've changed it much. I mean, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. that means the lookups or the uh, data model creating relationships. And I don't see that's changed much in the last few years, except the X lookup. I mean, I'd need more specific information there on what. Yeah. So David, what, yes. I don't think that's changed a ton in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to know what was wrong with it, I guess is my question. If it, <laughs> okay, that, it has to be simplified means something was wrong. Because obviously, if a lot of people think that's not, I mean, it worked real slow when you had multiple V lookups, but the relationships, I think, work fairly quickly. Like you can do a pivot table in Power Pivot on a couple hundred million rows. Mm -hmm. Oh, primary and secondary keys. Well, that yeah, that is that, that's I thought the relationships you have primary and foreign. Now I'm not sure if you're talking about access, which I really don't use access because I mean uh, in Excel, I mean I, I I see the relationship window and there's primary and foreign. That's what you mean by primary and secondary. I don't think that's been simplified a great deal. I don't think it's terribly hard, but I uh, but I would urge David to go on Excel user voice and make a suggestion on how to make it better. Because I think they would get, you'd get a lot of support if you had a better way to do it. Got it. I think that answers for David, definitely. And um, obviously, since you founded uh, Excel with Wayne, and after a lot of experience with Excel, you've written a book uh, with Microsoft and designed Excel courses for Harvard. And of course, uh, your teaching experience as well. So uh, what was most challenging when you started building Excel with Wayne about your early days a little, if we can know? Uh, we, I guess finding the right price to charge for it. I don't know. <laughs> we've done that. It wasn't hard. <coughs> I mean, I did the videos in PowerPoint mixed, which your viewers may not know about, but in PowerPoint, 
with Office 365, you can just record really easily the screen and it really provides a high quality recording. It's slow to save the videos, but uh, I think, <coughs> sorry, but basically it wasn't, I mean, I had all these, I would do five or six minute videos. I'd lay them out and it was just sitting in front of the computer and doing them. And then my, my partner, great guy, Ryan Bond, who was in one of my classes when I taught at University of Houston, he designed the site. And I think we have our, just putting the stuff in the right modules in the right order. Because when you teach, it's very important to teach things in the right sequence. And you have to make sure that when you teach topic C, they know A and B. But, uh, I mean, you, you can't teach people to run before they know how to walk. And I think one thing I'm pretty good at in my books is organizing the material so you can go one step at a time and get from baby steps to be like a real expert. And so, big one example. So when I taught the Excel solver, my best student on that was a guy named Art Lakebrook, who was a music major undergrad, never took math. Mm -hmm. I guess music and math go together, but he was amazing at the Excel solver. And I think now he's working for 3M and whenever they have an optimization problem, they give it to him. I mean, he just took like a duck to water with the Excel solver. I mean, he solved this little game that they have at a restaurant in the US called Cracker Barrel, where you have to jump pegs and leave one peg in the center. He got Excel to solve that, and I still don't know how he did it. But I mean, he took offset function and all the functions I taught him. And oh, a key thing on solver for your listeners, most teachers just teach the linear solver. It's very important to teach the evolutionary solver and the GRG multi-star. Mm -hmm. So nonlinear models use the multi-star. You need upper and lower bounds or evolutionary. Because basically most of the world is not linear. And if you just teach linear optimization models in your classes or that's all you learn, your teacher's doing you a huge disservice. We spent a lot of time on nonlinear model. Like if you want to fit curves, GRG multi-star does a great job of fitting curves. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. I think uh, uh, before getting into analytics, obviously I have a question from the audience that I would want to pick. Um, oh, good. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and it was, I'm just scrolling. Um, all right. It was something related to finance and the inter intersection. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, of finance. Just give me a moment. All right. Before before getting on that question, I I saw George's question, and uh, I would love to know your thoughts on that. Uh, so uh, George is asking, do you think Google's Sheets is catching up on Excel? Well, that's probably the main reason they're adding stuff to Office 365. To be honest, I haven't used Google Sheets much. Obviously, it's cheaper since it's free. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not an expert on Google Sheets. I'm sorry, because I mean I I try and stay away from it because I like Excel. But I mean, Google Sheets can do a lot. And I mean, but I think I'd love to know, I don't know where to find it, what companies, what percentage of the computers that on on a given moment are on Excel and what percent are on Google Sheets? I'd say it's probably 90% are on Excel. Now, so catching up in terms of usage, I don't think so. But it, Google Sheets has a lot of good features, for instance, the solver optimization. The Google yeah. Sheets, I think, has that, but is it any good? I haven't tried it. I, I really have to admit, I have never wanted to use Google Sheets. I mean, I know it's got a lot of stuff, yeah, and I know it's good, 
but I mean, I think I think Excel is so much better, and it's going to be it, people will use Google Sheets, I'm sure, to do things in a collaborative environment. I think Excel is improving on that. Again, I don't work that much with other people. I don't work well with other people. I guess is the reason. Uh, but but basically, I, I Google Sheets has plenty of features, and I I honestly could not rattle off the difference the things Excel has that Google Sheets doesn't. I mean, so that's if I were a Microsoft employee's job to do that it is I could do that. But I'm really not focused on Google Sheets. And to be honest, I probably should, but I just have. I mean, I'm not really teaching that much, but this summer I've been busier than ever. I'm realizing my math and sports book, writing the Office 365 book, and we may revise our and our operations research book is under revision. Plus, I do these online courses for Becker Accounting Review for accountants. And so I've just been swamped. Definitely. And uh, yeah, Google Sheets does have a lot of uh, features, but yeah, that's- I'm just not an expert on that, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're into more, obviously you are just into Excel. So I got that question from about analytics and uh, it's an interesting question. How is finance intersecting with analytics? Well, we probably need several hours for that, but let's go through a couple of things. Portfolio yeah. optimization. So basically, if you have a we have a financial advisor for our money, he's got to decide first what at, what percentage of our money goes in each asset class: real estate, gold, Nasdaq, stocks in India, stocks in China, etc. And then you have to decide if twenty percent goes in U.S. stocks, where does that go? And so that's very heavy on analytics. And unfortunately, past stock prices don't tell you that much about the future. No, very few people saw the 2008 crash coming. They should have. Mm -hmm. I have a chat. I have a book called Analytics Stories with John Wiley, where I have a chapter. Show, there was a movie, The Big Short, in a book saying people should have known the housing market was crashing. I mean, now COVID, people knew a, a, a pandemic was going to come. They just didn't know when. And I mean, that's that's a whole. We could have hours of questions on analytics related to COVID, to be honest, which I know has hit India as hard as it. India, Brazil, and the US have been hit. I think Peru has the most deaths per person, which is tragic. And I mean, it's just a horrible thing that horrible thing that happened to the world. And to be honest, I hope China's held accountable for this in some way, uh, to be blunt about that. But, it, but so portfolio optimization, and another example is capital budgeting. So all the drug companies I know do this. So to develop one good drug like Prozac for Eli Lilly for depression, they go through hundreds or thousands of compounds and they run simulations on how the, that compound might do to decide which compounds to go ahead with. So Monte Carlo, and so that's capital budgeting. What's the range of net present values for the uh, new product? And then I, you can see every one of the drug companies has a book of printouts where they try and figure out which drugs to go at compounds to go ahead with. So again, there might've been hundreds of compounds to lead to one Prozac where we just had an Alzheimer's drug approved. I bet there were thousands of failures. And so basically that's how the drug, the drug business is a bigger casino than Las Vegas or Macau, to be honest about that. Because you're just gambling on these drugs. Will they help people or not? And most of them won't, and you know that. And, but basically you have to run most companies that are smart will run Monte Carlo simulations on new products. Like if a product has a 10% chance of making money, you shouldn't do it. 
If it has a 90% chance of making money, you should probably do it. And so it may, I, I can't understand how people make decisions based on point estimates. To me, Monte Carlo simulation is utilized far too little in the business world. I think that's changing. But, and I've taught a lot of classes at companies on Monte Carlo simulation. I taught General Motors, Cummins Engine, General Electric, uh, Eli Willey, taught lots of uh, Pfizer, taught Monte Carlo at lots of companies. I'm just amazed that more companies don't use it more. Microsoft, as far as I know, doesn't use it a ton. Go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, that definitely may, uh, makes a lot of sense. And uh, there's uh, another follow-up question from Paul Vikas. Is, uh, do you think is this pandemic uh, made companies realize the need of digital transformation, analytics, et cetera? So that's a really good question. I mean, since we're working more remotely, you need to have your company data in really good form that people can use it. So here's one thing I always ask companies. Every company tracks sales. So you need to also track your forecasts so you can look for bias and accuracy. Yeah. I don't think most companies can easily access their forecast and their sales in the same really quickly. They're in separate separate parts of uh, the company and stuff like that. I once heard the guy, the Freakonomics author, David Levitt, talk about, he was trying to help a comp uh, fast food restaurant predict the performance of employees. So the question would be, based on what you knew when you hired them, could you predict how good they'd be as an employee? So they had one database that was what they knew when they hired them. They had another database that was how they performed. The databases didn't talk to each other, so he couldn't do the project. The trick is the question about the join and stuff like that. You want to make sure you can put your data together so people can have the data they need to solve the problem at hand. But the pandemic has hurt analytics in one way. So like we usually predict the future from the past, right? So I'm a company. I want to predict next year's sales from the last five years. Well, COVID made that first four years of data worthless because it was pre-COVID data. So, I mean, MIT had a post on this on their uh, website. Basically, all these analytic models that were keyed to past sales data they're useless now because we only have newer data in this new world. We're try predicting airline traffic from US to India using 2016 through 2019. I mean, that'd be a joke. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, we don't, we are not going to have data for years to use even the simplest forecasting models or AI to do good forecast. By the way, Office 360 Excel has a good tool called the forecast sheet that lets you forecast the trend and seasonality. Very simple to use. Select the data, just click, and you get forecast based on winter's exponential smoothing, which is pretty wow. good. But obviously, that would be worthless if you use pre-COVID data. Like sales, I did an example in one of my webinars on jewelry sales. Well, I stopped in 2020, 2019, because people weren't buying that much jewelry during COVID, I think because you weren't going anywhere. I'll guess on Zoom, jewelry would help you look better. I know people weren't, men were not buying pants during COVID. Let's put it that way. Especially <laughs> Jeffrey Tubin, if you know who he is, but that's okay. But go ahead. Yeah, but but I think definitely that that does make a lot of sense where when you spoke about the analytics and about the forecasting, for the next five years, they don't have the data it's to gonna be a problem. It's a big problem and nobody wants to talk about it like that. <laughs> but I don't right, know if I talk about anything. 
yeah uh, just for the audience and just for to remind them we are giving away three uh two uh annual subscription of 365 data science please don't forget to mention hashtag 365 data science in the comment section and we will raffle it by end of the show uh also to continue when obviously um i wanted to know more about analytics and uh what is your take on analytics in various fields like sports finance marketing obviously we spoke okay. a little about finance but what about sports and marketing those we are talked, kind of heating up yeah we talked a little bit about marketing but sports i know a lot about i wrote probably mm -hmm. the first big textbook on math and sports called mathletics which will have a second edition coming wow. out in january of next year uh with two co-authors costas pellicrinas and scott nessler who are just great people and have done a, a fantastic job but my best friend is jeff sagarin from mit you know, i went to mit with him and basically he is the premier sports handicapper in the US. And together we came up with a system to rate NBA basketball players and lineups. And we worked for the mm -hmm. Dallas Mavericks for 10 years or so. They had the second best record in the league. Mark Cuban, who your audience knows from Shark Tank, owns the Mavericks and they did very well. Then one year we worked for the New York Knicks, which had been a historically bad team. But the one year we worked for them, they won 54 games, their most wins in over 20 years, and they won their only playoff series in over 20 years. And where I, what I, so we started this like in the year 1990, in 1999. And so analytics in basketball has come so far. And a lot of this is, this gets to a question I think you're gonna ask, but I think I'll get to it now. What data do you need to solve a problem? So if I say, who's a good basketball player? What did people used to look at? The box score points scored, uh, shooting percentage, rebound, block shots, steals, et cetera. So you want to shake up the box score data is easily available. I mean, you can get that in two minutes for every player for the last 20 years. But then do you know how good the player is? Because that doesn't, those statistics almost don't count defense. Basketball is half offense and half defense. So we said we needed a different data set. We needed how the score of the game moves with every player on and off the court. If you're a good player, the score moves in your favor when you're on the court. If you're a bad player, the score moves against your team when you're on the court. And so basically, we came up with a system using sophisticated regression to rate players on how the score moves when they're on and off the court. Now, people have improved on this and done a lot of stuff. And now they have, so what data you need to measure defense? We now have camera data. There are cameras in every basketball, baseball, hockey, uh, I'm not sure about soccer arena, football arena now. And in basketball, they measure 20 times a second where the ball is and where the player is. So you can, you, so how, that's where you need Python and R because the data is a billion rows. And so you want to figure out, how can you figure out how good a player is at defense based on where he was every second of the game? And right. in football, how you can tell how good a person guarding a U.S. football, guarding a defensive back, a defensive back is guarding a receiver. And so football in U.S. is just in its infancy. And in soccer, which most of the world calls football, or England, I have to say, how did they blow that girl? Okay, I mean, and Messi finally won a title. But basically, <laughs> uh, but basically in soccer now, the trick is digitizing the video. So you have the video, nobody ever scores in soccer, basically. It, two, two goals is a lot, three goals is a lot, ton. 
So what you need to do is if you want to figure out how good a soccer player is, you've got to transform the video into a digital form and then try and figure out what determines for a given position, what makes a soccer player a good player. It's not just scoring goals. It's tackling people, not getting penalties. And I think that's in its infancy. And there's a lot, there's more money in soccer than there is in U.S. football. I mean, Messi gets, I mean, Barca, before the pandemic, uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, they had biggest payrolls. On, they're the most valuable sports franchises in the world. And even tennis, which we just saw in Wimbledon, there's a lot of analytics like, should you serve inside? Should you serve outside? Yeah, exactly. Or should you serve on the first serve versus the risk of double faulting? Uh, lots and doubles, where should you position the players? And in baseball, they have cameras to tell you how hard some, what makes a person a good baseball hitter? Well, how hard they hit the ball. But I mean, until five years ago, they didn't know how hard the player hits the ball. And in cricket, yeah. which uh, some bowler, they call them bowlers when they hit it, right? So bowlers are the pitchers. What do you call the pitcher in cricket? The guy who throws the ball. The baller. Okay. So the, there are slow pitch bowlers and fast pitch bowlers and certain yeah. hitters, certain batters do better against slow pitch than fast pitch. And so you want to figure out how to put the pitcher, the hit the batter can't hit against. And then where do you position the fielders? And then we get in the, well, I'll go ahead for the next question because I could talk forever on that. <laughs> no, I think definitely that is a lot of information, but I think uh, analytics has just gone up to next level and uh, now it's, it's getting, sure. yeah. Uh, also, since we're talking about analytics, obviously there's a question that is more into supply chain analytics. So can you tell us how a business can get better with supply chain analytics? Uh, great question. So I think at the heart of being good at supply chain analytics is good forecasting. I mean, if you have bad forecasts, your inventory models, I mean, mm -hmm. I think most companies will do like a service level model. Like I want 99% of demand met on time. And then you can decide how much to order and basically uh, when you place an order. But if your forecasts are bad, that's going to be a disaster. So you've got to first start with good forecasting. And then you have to have sort of facility. <coughs> There's so many things. Facility location models. Yeah. So if, like a problem I give my students is put service centers in three U.S. cities to minimize the maximum distance of any U.S. city from a service center. Or, or how many service centers do you need to make sure no U.S. city is more than 400 miles from the service center? Basically, uh, questions questions like that. And then a new, hot new topic is supply chain contracts. Mm -hmm. So basically setting up contracts that basically incentivize both, the, <coughs> sorry, the company that's making the product Mm -hmm. and the company that's selling the product. If you make the product, you want to give an incentive to the company buying it to buy more of your product. So you might okay. say, I'll buy back what's left over. Setting up optimal contracts that benefit both the manufacturer and the retailer is a hot new mm -hmm. field in supply chain analytics. But there's probably a lot of other areas that I don't know about. But then basically, so production schedule. So basically, you come up with the forecast for mm -hmm. Jeff Cam, who I knew from University of Cincinnati, Wake Forest, they would have a model that would tell Procter & Gamble how many diapers to make at every factory every day or every week. Yeah. So how do you come up, take the forecast based on your production capacity, come up with a production schedule? That's an evolving field. 
that probably yeah. needs a lot of artificial intelligence to make up a good schedule. Yeah, exactly. But those are the key, to me, those are the key aspects of supply chain analytics. But if your forecasting is bad, it won't matter how good anything else you have is. So getting, mm -hmm. maybe coming up with the most accurate forecast, and that's hard because there are special factors involved in forecasting. There are good packages. There's one called Forecast X. I mean, I haven't used it that much, but I think what I like to do is build my own forecast models using the Excel solver, the GRG multi-star or the evolutionary solver to incorporate special factors. And then you'd want to link that to basically the inventory models. But there are unique, I mean, I guess you could write it in VBA, but there are people who write what's, there's company Manugistics in the US. Uh, there's even pricing optimization companies. So pricing is part of supply chain and marketing analytics. I mean, what price do you charge to make the most money? That'll affect your demand. That affects where you make stuff. Everything in the world is very complicated. COVID's made the supply chain more complicated because you can't get lumber, you can't get computer chips. The U.S. you can't buy a car because there's no computer chips. Exactly. And nobody. That's where you need Monte Carlo, because I mean, <laughs> you can have a production schedule when you don't know how many chips you're getting. At. I mean, you, I mean, you have to build uncertainty into everything, and so I think a lot of tools that we've developed in the past have basically fallen apart it's not the i mean by far that's a drop in the bucket compared to the worst things COVID has done to this world but i mean from the business standpoint i mean it's something we have to worry about the fact that our forecasting models are going to be wrong we don't know what that's for demand we don't know what we're going to get of raw material and just forecasting COVID cases nobody was good at that i know the models they use but there was a guy, Young Goo, who had the best site in the U.S., but everybody was way off. I mean, everybody has been way off all the time on forecasting COVID. I mean, the model, there was one thing that said we'd have 2 million deaths in the U.S., one model from England. Well, thank we've had 600,000 at least, which is tragic, of course. In India, honestly, we don't know how many deaths there have been. I mean, it's we don't know in any country how many deaths there have been. It's, and the quality of the data is a big issue in COVID. And then what's the risk ratio? So like in the United States, 50 state representatives flew from Texas to Washington and they were all vaccinated according to them and six of them got COVID. How could that happen if the vaccines are so good? I don't understand. So, I mean, it's just, well, but the, the way you measure COVID deaths, the best way I've seen is excess deaths in the country. Look, the last four years, how many people died and compare it to 2020 and 2021. Now, some of those deaths are indirect deaths due to mental health, opioid suicide. Opioid deaths in the US went up 30% the last year. I mean, because COVID has depressed a lot of people besides killing them directly with COVID. But next mm -hmm. deaths, I would, I would say that's part of the COVID death toll. So The Economist, the best magazine, all your listeners and viewers should get The Economist magazine. It's the best magazine in the world. It's fairly objective. It, in the U.S., we have cable news for the liberals and the conservatives. We don't have good cable news for people who just want to know the facts. We just don't have it. But basically, The Economist magazine, I think, will give you a reasoned ana analysis on every issue that affects the world, not just the U.S. So I urge your listeners and viewers to subscribe to The Economist magazine. 
Fantastic. Go ahead. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for that uh, uh, question, Manisha. Obviously, got kind of brought up a lot of topics and uh, great ones. Uh, and uh, since we were talking about uh, little about tourism as well, your and about data, Paul is asking: uh, tourism aviation industries were most affected in this pandemic. How analytics solve problem with less data in hand? That is good. Great question. So yeah. I should have mentioned this when we're talking about the fact data-driven forecast for the airline industry on how much like that forecast sheet tool i would give an example i put an airline miles travel predict the next year it works great till COVID or 9 11. october 2001 nobody traveled on a plane if you'd use an extrapolation model you would get nowhere so i think what you want to do is there's a thing called the wisdom of crowds or prediction markets people are good at forecasting like sporting events prove that people can pretty much set point spreads for soccer cricket they I, i'm sure there's a cricket match a lot of a lot of your viewers in india and pakistan would know i think this team's going to win by 12 runs okay they would have a good idea u.s football i can in my head come up with the point spread within two points because i mean we just watch the games we have a sense the human mind is more powerful than any computer by a long shot so I think the best way, if I was advising American Airlines, Delta Airlines, or any of the other Air Southwest, or any of the airlines, or uh, uh, Lufthansa, or British Air, or whatever, I'm leaving a lot out here, uh, Emirates, because they're on all the soccer jerseys. Okay, I have to mention that. So hmm. if I were advising them, I would have the people who know the business come up with their own forecasts and build a distribution based on that. That would be totally subjective. And I would build scenarios. <laughs> so scenarios would be like we really do crush COVID. In other words, basically, it goes through a manageable disease because in a lot of countries, it's Africa. I think I last I saw way under 10 percent have been vaccinated. So I want to follow flights to Africa. I mean, are they letting people in? I honestly don't know. And then I think Europe is letting Americans in. I've got to plug my computer in. We'll be in trouble. So I'm just going to move. I didn't yeah, realize sure. one second I'm going to move to a different spot, which should nice. actually have better internet, but I'll plug it in. Give me one second. Within the kitchen. Okay, it'll be plugged in. Okay, now. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. So before getting on, I obviously wanted to uh, not only touch base on um, uh, analytics and Excel, but also touch base on something like conferences. I'm sure you visit conferences and uh, how do you feel about not visiting conferences since last almost uh, like yeah, yeah, so at the palms which is the uh, supply chain conference in the u.s i gave an hour tutorial on mm -hmm. analytics and that was well received zoom you don't get the personal relationships but i think one good thing about analytics is see if i was teaching like shakespeare and i never understood shakespeare but I mean, I did like Hamlet, but I didn't like most of Shakespeare. But, uh, but basically, if I was teaching Shakespeare, I think it'd be really hard to do it on Zoom. I think you really gotta meet the people and see the people. But if I'm teaching analytics, I mean, I won't get to know the people and get the relationships. But I think analytics in a sense is almost better in some ways on Zoom. Because when I taught class, here was the problem. I'd go mm -hmm. too fast or too slow for everybody. You know, I couldn't <laughs> be just right. But so now we record the classes and then they can play it over and over. Like a great thing is Khan Academy. 
uh, basically he does K through kindergarten through college math and other subjects. And for five minute videos and anybody listening who's got a kid struggling with math should go on K8 Khan Academy and have that site help their kid with math. It's terrific. I mean, he's a great teacher. I mean, I think he uses old tools to write. He just likes to doodle and write, but he's a fantastic teacher and he knows so much about so many subjects. And basically you could get, if you're homeschooling your kid, you could teach them all the math they need on Khan Academy. It's truly fantastic. Like I think on Excel with Wayne, basically we can teach online well, but the conferences, you met people, you meet people, you make connections, you get ideas for writing papers. So one conference, <coughs> sorry, one conference I went to in the 1970s was in Las Vegas. And it was funny, I'd get up at six o'clock in the morning to go swimming and the people there hadn't gone to bed. They were still gambling because you had to walk, go through the casino to get to the pool. But I met one of my friends, he's from India, Sid Deshmuk, teaches at Northwestern. I met him at the conference and we took the same flight back uh, from Las Vegas to Chicago and we wrote three papers. On the flight, we got an idea for three papers that got us published, that got published in top journals. And we came up with the ideas literally on the plane flight home. So, I mean, that would not have happened on Zoom. I mean, you need, if you're going to be a researcher or basically learn about people doing your job in other places, I don't think you can connect on Zoom or whatever teams or whatever the way you can in person. You got to go out to eat, you got to go drink, you got to do things like this. I mean, yeah. you have to basically have fun with having fun with people on Zoom is a contradiction. <laughs> I mean, you got to basically, people were meant to be with people. I mean, they were to be in the same room with people and you can't size up a person. I mean, I can't, I don't think I could size up somebody's personality on Zoom. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, but in person, I think in two minutes, I think I know if I talk to them for two or three minutes, I usually have the right impression, that the correct impression, be it good or bad. I have the, I think I can size up, because being a professor, you see lots of students. Before I was a professor, I really didn't interact with many people, but then I get a couple hundred people a year. And I mean, I could understand people pretty quickly once I yeah. talk to them for five minutes. But that's a really good question. I think the conference is, I think the Operations Research Management Science Conference is scheduled for the fall to be in person in California. But California went back to masks. And then there's the other issue of the masks. Can you get to know somebody with these masks on? I mean, I understand we probably need them. But basically, then the whole issue, if, you, if you're vaccinated, if everybody in the room is vaccinated, do we need a mask? Then why do we get vaccinated? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just really we've got so many issues and I don't think our governments are honest with us. I mean, that's mm. just a personal thing, but go ahead. Yeah. No. Uh, so if you get a chance to visit physical conference now, would you? Wait. Oh yeah, I would. I haven't gone for a couple of years really because I've been so busy. I mean, mm. I've got so much work doing the, 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 I thought this year would not be much work, but redoing the Excel book for the new office 365 stuff, and has turned out to be a much bigger job than I thought. I mean, it'll probably push a thousand pages. I mean, I'd say 20% of it is new. And I think I cover all these great new Office 365 features pretty well. And then I expanded, there'd be little things that I left out, 
like one thing I left out in the v, in the lookup chapter, of course, was X lookup because it didn't exist. But then sometimes lookups don't work because it thinks it's a number when you think it's text and vice versa. How do you fix that? How do you do approximate lookups? So I've tried to add these little tricks that I, every edition I add little tricks that have not been in the book in previous editions, as well as the, the new stuff Excel's added. But I mean, again, I'd say the new Excel stuff took me 200 pages in the new book to talk about. I mean, I think I did a good job on the chapters, yeah. but I mean, I'm still, right after I get off the phone here, I'm gonna start, I have to do the 3D map chapter. My copy editor said I did a bad job explaining stuff and she was right. I mean, she's really good. She's really good. I mean, I added one or two things that I didn't explain them well, so I got to go back and explain them better. But I think I'm good at explaining things. I mean, I think, and I wasn't when I started teaching. I mean, I just plugged away at it. And I mean, my mind works in sort of a linear fashion. And I pride myself on never skipping steps in class. I mean, basically, I'll start step one and we'll go to step two. And by the time we're done, we might be at step 50. But I think you go, journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And most things you want to do in class, you got to do one step at a time and explain it and then go back and tell people what you've done. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, obviously, I wanted to also share your last book with the audience. Just give me a second. And... Oh, Analytic Stories is the last book I wrote. With okay, John. so, okay, this one was not the last one. It's Analytic Stories. If you type in Analytic Stories on the okay. top. Analytic Stories Winston. Because I really think that's a terrific book. It's like, how could they have spotted Bernie Madoff as a fraud right there on the top? Wow. The cover is a frog turning, uh, like a frog turning to a prince and lead turning into gold. Because <laughs> analytics can make money for you. It's sort of a wow. strange people. That book is not sold as well as I hope, but honestly, it's uh, I could give you so many stories from that book about, anal like how should we vote in the US we vote the most votes wins. But lately we've been using something called ranked choice voting. That's discussed in the book. Uh, I didn't, I wrote the book pre-COVID so there's nothing on COVID in the book. But there's a lot, how do you measure health in a country? There's something called disability adjusted years lost. So when wow. somebody, if somebody has a, a bad back for 10 years, that's equivalent to using losing, let's say two years of life. So this guy, Alan Murray at the University of Washington came up with this great idea, disability adjusted life years to sort of measure what's the biggest health problem in the US, it's cancer and heart attack. What's the biggest health problem in Africa? They don't have cancer and heart attacks much, but they have horrible infant mortality, they have horrible HIV, they have horrible uh, dysentery. So every part of the world has different health problems and you can actually quantify that. So I mean, I think that there's so much, there are so many wonderful stories about how analytics is used. Uh, and I think that book just scratches the surface. So how do you use analytics to decide who gets paroled uh, from US prisons? That's very controversial. But I mean, it's got five stars from everybody who rated it. So it's not bad. Yeah, but then- I think people will, you could read like a chapter while you go to the bathroom. It's not, yeah. it's pretty short. Go ahead. I think yeah, um, these uh, the crash of two thousand eight and obviously the American working uh, worker improving. These are very interesting chapter and uh, definitely something that I would uh, love to look forward to read too. Right, um, income inequality is a big topic, and that book talks a lot about income inequality and how you measure it. And there are a lot of things, but predicting the crash of two thousand eight 
is uh, one of the better chapters. Uses something called, and then Benford's law. Seventy yeah. percent of all digits begin with one through numbers begin with one through four. You would think only forty-four percent, but in most financial statements, seventy percent of the numbers begin with one through four. Yeah. Which is quite quite. It's called Benford's law. B e n f o r d apostrophe s. You can win a lot of money betting on that if people don't know. Yeah. So uh, also before we get on to, uh, I, I obviously had uh, one, two more questions for you around analytics, but I would love to, if you give me a moment, I'd love to actually announce the first winner for Oh yeah, Excel. Go, sure, anytime. Yeah. So uh, the first draw is here and here we go. All the best to everyone who are participating in the giveaway for hashtag 365 data science. They are creating some amazing courses, so do check them out. Chetan, congratulations. We'll just announce the last winner by end of the show. Uh, and continue with uh, when obviously I, I had uh, something that I would want to know, and I just had a look at your book uh, in terms of the analytics as well. So what do you think are the most important skill sets that an analyst should have? OK, great. Really great question, because I'm sure most of the people watching and listening want to get into analytics. Exactly. So you got to know the math. You've got to know basically statistics. You've got to know, I think, artificial intelligence now. And then you have to know, probably should know management science or operations research. And mm -hmm. you really, if you want to get it, I can tell you this is true in sports analytics. If you want to get a job in sports analytics, you got to know Python and R. So I mean, Excel, you got to know Excel, but if you're going to deal with big data sets, you got to know Python and R. You absolutely have to know, like, how could I run an artificial intelligence algorithm in R or uh, Python, I guess, does it also. And I, honestly, I couldn't get a job in that now because, I mean, I don't know those things. Mm -hmm. But you got, and then I think one of the most important skills, and I don't think I always did the best job teaching this, when I have a problem to solve, what data do I need to solve the problem? So we talked about this, in and that's something that, I'm not sure you can teach it. It's like, you have to have sort of a gift of knowing, I, I, I'd like to write a book someday of problems and analytics. How do you figure out what data you need? Not emphasize the analysis, the, the analysis. Because in basketball, everybody looked at box scores. And then we looked at the way the score moved in the game and then people looked at the camera data and so in american football so you said next generation they call the analytics in american football next gen stats and so basically they put the cameras in the arena and then basically what do they measure and in soccer what should cameras what data do you need to figure out who's a good soccer player who's a good offensive lineman in u.s football and then if you okay Another so like folks want to predict the price of wine. This is a classic analytics study. So Bordeaux has the best wine in the world in France, that part of France. So if you can predict the price of wine in advance and you buy the wine, you can make a lot of money in a couple of years because you it's an inefficient market. If you knew this wine should sell for five thousand dollars and they're only charging two thousand, you'd buy it because it's probably gonna be it's like the stocks, undervalued, overvalued stock. So it turns out what you really need to predict the price of wine is the weather. You need to know rainfall and temperature in the months leading up to the harvest. And that can very, do a very good job of predicting the price of Bordeaux wine. But people who are experts on wine, they hate that. 
because they think only a wine taste yeah. can predict if it's a good price of wine. But you've got to, I mean, every problem is different. You've got to give me a problem and tell me, like, what data do I need to solve the problem? If I can give one more example of that, Obama, yeah. election analytics, Obama in 2012 versus Mitt Romney. You would think the Republicans are better on analytics because they're the business part. Well, Obama was way better on analytics than Mitt Romney. And basically, what do you need to know about every voter in a nutshell to do make your election performance better? You need to know, have a based on what you know about them, what's the likelihood they'll vote for? So like if you know somebody's a 90% chance to vote for Obama, you don't want to call them, you don't want to do anything, they're going to vote for Obama. If there are 10 mm-hmm chance they're going to vote for Obama. You don't want to do anything. They're not going to change their mind. But exactly. if there's a 45 to 55% chance they're going to vote for Obama, you want to advertise and reach them. And so basically, that's how mm-hmm. Obama set his advertising budget. He set his advertising budget, this is marketing, to reach toss-up voters. Then there's one more thing you need to know about a voter. What's the chance they'll vote? So yeah. if a voter has a 10% chance of voting, but they're 90% chance to be for Obama, you want to give them a ride to vote to make sure they vote. But if, they, if they're 90% chance, they're, if they're a 10% chance for Obama, you don't want to do anything for them if you're for Obama. But if they're, <laughs> they're a toss-up voter, you want to move them out of the toss-up range. And then basically the, you want, want to do is concentrate your resources, making sure that people have a high chance of being for Obama, but who usually don't vote will vote. That's the biggest difference you can make. And they did that masterfully. They used logistic regression to predict who people would vote for and the likelihood. And this was a huge problem because you had to get a list of all the voters. And that's not even that easy. You had to get information on all the voters. And so this was a humongous analytics problem. And now both parties are very good at this. And they even use computers to set up in the US the congressional districts so the Republicans if they want to have the most people elected, we'll set the districts for them, and the Democrats will set the districts for them. That's a bad use of math, in my opinion. Okay, but but basically, I think you've got to know the analytics, the statistics, the management science, the AI. You've got to know how to put this into practice. You have to know communication skills. You have to have communicate. You have to be able to explain, like neural nets is a good example. Neural nets, most people consider a black box. And they don't want to use it, even though they can be really good, useful. Yeah. And but you have to convince people that out of, out of sample, this thing is forecasted really well. I have faith in it. Now, basically, uh, but it's hard when you can show people the. There's one company in my town, Megaputer, that I think does neural nets and shows you the equation. It would really help if somehow these AI techniques could show the equation. I, there's a way to mimic that. With a neural net, you sort of create lots of data points, create the forecast, and you chart them. And you can sort of see in a chart what's the effect of each variable. But I mean, a lot of people can't get past the black box view. But one thing on the finance that somebody talked about, Renaissance Technologies is by far the most successful hedge fund in history. They've averaged making, I think, 40% a year. They're totally a quant fund. Now, nobody knows what they do, but they've crushed their (laughs) founding father was Jim Simon, one of the greatest mathematicians in the world. So, I mean, people aren't going to tell you, if they can beat the market, they're not going to tell you how. Yeah. I mean, I have ideas on that myself, but I haven't had time. I I think I have a way to price options that would make money, but I don't know how to program, so I would need somebody to program. program. 
program it for me that I don't know. But go ahead. But first, Python and R, if you want to get a job in data science, if you want to get an MBA job, I don't think you need it. But if you want to get a job that says data science, it's going to say Python and R anyway. Yeah, that's very important. So um, since uh, we spoke a lot about uh, Excel, with we spoke very less actually about Excel with Wayne, but I would love to know the new courses that are coming up and uh, what, what can people expect uh, uh, from the coming up courses and what are you focusing on? Well, we're going to focus on, of course, the new Office 365 features. For instance, I think one of the last videos I did, you can get historical weather data from Excel. Uh, basically, they again, their data sources mostly come from Mathematica, except for the stock data. But I, I would like to focus on like case studies where people send me problems they can't solve, just to show people how to solve things in Excel. I mean, I think I've covered most of the functions Excel yeah. has. What I need are good examples. And I mean, I would if you have an Excel problem, and I mean, I can't promise I'd have time to get to it right away. But Winston at Indiana.edu. If you send me a small little example of an Excel problem that's giving you trouble, I'll try and solve it for you. And if I can use it, it doesn't have to be your non your confidential data. But I'll try and solve the problem like this guy sent me this morning. I think if I have a half hour, I can solve this problem and save him probably 50 hours of time. Because I mean, exactly. most of the, I mean, I'm pretty good with using the Excel functions to basically solve things. Uh, I don't do a lot of VBA. I probably we, I should put more VBA in the Excel with Wayne and hopefully we'll do that also. Mm -hmm. No, definitely it does make sense and 100% uh, trusted uh, source you are, uh, Wayne. Oh, thanks. Uh, I, would, I would love uh, to, yeah, just show, show folks and the audience that this is the website. Excelwithwayne.com is where all the courses and everything uh, are present. So one can reach out to excel with wayne and you can see a list of the videos there's a list of videos you can see what we have the video description wow. right that's right fantastic and there's everything so go ahead if you have more questions yep all right uh when uh this was uh all from my end uh for such a fantastic session and Thanks. uh loved Thank it you. uh love the information uh so before you leaving i would just like to uh, quickly announce our last winner uh here and uh here we go so all the best everyone joining in it was fantastic session from wayne uh, uh here we go with the last winner and it is Paul Vikash, thanks for asking amazing questions, Paul, and also congratulations. Uh, one last question, Wayne, uh, obviously before you leave, if folks want to reach out to you, which is the best way to reach out? Uh, they can use that email. I just want to know, did you pick the winner with a random number generator? <laughs> no, there's this uh, StreamYard tool, but uh, that's a great idea. Next time, maybe I'll use that. But it kind of collects in automatically the hashtag 365 data science. It's the StreamYard tool, which will automatically collect the names and everything. And quickly, uh, it's up. No, they can send me an email at winston at indiana.edu. Okay, fantastic. I can share the email ID if you okay. uh, can reach out to me as well. But this was fun session. Thanks Yo, again, thanks, Wayne. Thanks Thank so you very much. much. Yeah. Thank you. Say okay, bye, everyone.